the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is The Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Happy Wednesday, friends, and welcome to The Jenna Ellis Show. I'm Jenna Ellis, and breaking news today, Justice Breyer is retiring from the Supreme Court, so we want to break that down. Today, we had planned to air for you part two of the election integrity conversation, and part two is going to be with my good friend Russ Noble from Judicial Watch. Fascinating interview. We're going to drop that tomorrow, so make sure that you are subscribing to The Jenna Ellis Show wherever you stream your podcast or stay right here on our channel uh, on video on YouTube and Rumble and make sure you're listening to that. So that will drop tomorrow because we wanted to uh, bring you analysis today of what exactly is going on with uh, the Supreme Court and uh, in the context of this being the end of January. So we're going to get to that and then also discuss with my good friend Michael Knowles from Daily Wire will join me today and uh, we'll get his take on that and the contentious and very interesting problem that is now facing Tennessee. Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. Uh, He is now a resident of Tennessee, so (laughs) we're going to get to that and uh, talk about our good friend Robbie Starbucks. So before all that, obviously the Biden administration has caused a financial crisis. They have no clue how to fix it. Oil prices have skyrocketed, and when oil prices go up, not only do your expenses go up, but the cost of transportation and shipping spikes, leading the prices of goods to rise. And we're already seeing record inflation. That's the last thing that we need. Our economy is in trouble, and you need to take steps to protect yourself. If all your money is tied up in stocks, bonds, and traditional markets, you may be vulnerable. So Legacy Precious Metals is the company that I trust for investing in gold because gold is one of the best ways to protect your retirement. You can't ever start your financial health and uh, make sure that you are protecting that too early. So Legacy Precious Metals can help you roll your retirement account into a gold-backed IRA where you still own the physical gold. They can also ship gold and precious metals safely and securely directly to your home. Call Legacy today at 866-528-1903 or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com where you can download their free investor's guide. If you want to talk to someone about your personal financial situation, then call and talk to one of their personalized consultants at 866-528-1903 or you can visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com. All right, so Justice Breyer is retiring. A couple of top-line points on this. First, this absolutely signals that the Democrats know that they are not going to retain control of the Senate after 2022. We already know that based on the demographics, uh, based on the races, and based on, frankly, the Democrats who aren't even running for re-election, that the House is going to swing Republican in the majority uh, after the midterms in 2022, but the Senate, which is split 
split 50-50 is going to swing then to Republicans. And I think that the timing of this judicial retirement is signaling that the Democrats know that they are losing that majority. What they don't want to have happen is the same thing that happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, where she refused to retire during President Obama's administration. And then unfortunately, she passed away uh, during the Trump administration, which allowed him to fill that seat with Amy Coney Barrett, which effectively switched the seat from an activist to a conservative. And we can obviously talk about whether or not Amy Coney Barrett is genuinely conservative, some issues that we have with her, but obviously it's a night and day contrast between her and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so Off the top, we have to also look at the timing of this, but then also the role of the judicial branch and why this is so important. So first on the political side of the court, because a president has nomination power given by the U.S. Constitution, then that means that Biden can fill this seat as soon as Breyer Uh, effectively steps down from the bench. They're going to want to do that fairly quickly while they still have the majority and the ability to do so, and also to make sure that they are using the news cycle to their advantage. Um, I was just talking with my good friend Dan Bongino on his radio show earlier, and what I said to him was that I think that the Democrats are so short-sighted that they are going to want to make sure that they shore up this seat with a younger, even more progressive leftist rather than go moderate because they already know that they are losing the majority in the House and they are contemplating that they're losing the majority in the Senate. So not only do they want to make sure that they have that replacement, but they don't care the casualties in their party of some of the moderate Democrats in some of these really tight races across the country who right now are really, really nervous that they may have to sign on to a Biden nomination of a progressive leftist. And so when you look at um, some of the Senate races, like we brought up, uh, you know, Mark Kelly out of Arizona, you know, that's some of these, uh, some of these races, some of these uh, senators are not going to necessarily Uh, take this as a good thing for their campaigns. Look at Joe Manchin. Look at Kristen Sinema. Um, As we talked about last week and as actually uh, Russ and I talked about and you're going to hear tomorrow um, about those two Democrats that stood firm against the crazy progressive leftist notion of a quote-unquote Voting Rights Act. That's what it's titled. That's not actually what it was. It was an attempt to coerce and manipulate and harness state constitutional authority uh, for election law and transfer that power unconstitutionally to federalize the system out of Congress. And that was a line too far for Joe Manchin. So he said no. And then uh, both of them voted against ending the filibuster in order to pass that bill. And they got reamed by their party, but both of them in moderately conservative districts, they ultimately did represent the will of the people and probably their own uh, policy orientation in, in that sense. And so where's the line going to be for Joe Manchin in particular, for uh, senators like Kristen Cinema, and on the flip side, would it be a really interesting uh, problem to have basically a bipartisan confirmation and a bipartisan dissent because Manchin and Cinema and maybe you know others of the Democrats will not get on board with Biden's progressive leftist nominee 
And yet Collins and Murkowski, who are basically Democrats, even though uh, they they claim to be Republicans and they're on record as Republicans, but we know that they're the squishes, uh, will they vote for Biden's progressive leftists? Wouldn't that be really interesting? But for the people who are saying that probably, you know, this is going to be more of a moderate conservative, um, I really don't think that that's, or moderate liberal rather, I really don't think that that's going to be the case. I think Democrats are going to be so short-sighted that they are going to want to get this nomination in. And then during the midterm elections, after the Dobbs case about abortion is handed down, which is likely to go conservative, undermine Roe versus Wade, which is actually the constitutional thing to do, Biden is going to be able to tout his progressive, pro-choice, leftist, crazy liberal that's on the bench and say, look, this is why we need to keep control of the Senate. And he is not going to care what casualties are in place from the Democratic Party. So we also need to talk about the functionality of the judiciary and why this whole idea of conservatism versus activism is not actually about Republicans versus Democrats. It's not a policy opinion. It's a constitutional requisite. Uh, So before we get to that, though, 2022 is going to be a critical year for America and for AMAC, which is the Association of Mature American Citizens, along with their nearly 2 million members. So the fight to stop out-of-control spending in the president's Build Back Better scheme, which By the way, there's nothing built, there's nothing back, there's nothing better, so total lie. It's far from over. Congress is plotting more legislation that could hurt our seniors. The midterm elections will be a battle for freedom versus socialism. Unlike these so-called liberal groups, AMAC is America's conservative, action-oriented, 50-plus organization fighting hard every day in Washington and across the nation for our seniors. So I'm urging you to to choose AMAC now. You will receive all the great membership benefits, including AMAC discounts on hotel travel, restaurants, and your membership will also support your values. So go to amac.us forward slash Ellis. Again, that is amac.us forward slash E-L-L-I-S to become an AMAC member now. Okay, so we're going to talk about, you know, all of the politics, and that's what you're going to hear, uh, the contemplation of the timing and the things that we've discussed in terms of the political orientation around Breyer's retirement announcement. But we always, always, as conservatives, have to contextualize this in what does our U.S. Constitution require and what is the conservative position in upholding the rule of law. So when we're talking about the judicial branch, remember, this is not at all a political or policy seat. That is what separates judges from policymakers and lawmakers. That's what separates the three political branches. When you have the legislative and the executive, those are the partisan uh, policy-driven branches. The judicial branch is inherently required to be unbiased, to not have political activism, to not have uh, any of those political biases or policy-making decisions. We've seen that an activist court, of course, has legislated from the bench, but they've done so wrongfully. And I would say that even if it was an opinion I happen to like, and I agree with the policy, what I don't agree with is legislating from the bench because that is constitutionally forbidden. So when we are talking about a conservative majority Always make sure that you define your terms. Conservatism in the context of the judiciary and Article III appointed judges on the federal bench, including the Supreme Court, cannot and should not be activists or partisan either way. 
They should not favor Republicans or Democrats. They shouldn't favor policies. All that they are doing is being a referee and making sure that everyone plays by the rules. So imagine if you had a referee at a sporting event that was biased toward one team or the other, or favored some rules versus others, thought that one rule was stupid, and so just tossed it out because, well, you know, I don't really like that, and I want to be a legislature, and I want to recreate the rule or fashion it differently. Then get off the bench and go be a lawmaker or go be part of the executive branch that enforces the law. But they cannot, cannot claim the power of a coordinate branch when you are on the judiciary. So what we always have to remember is that the judicial branch must stay firmly conservative, not Republican, not policy-driven, but conservative meaning conserving our rule of law. Now, I have absolutely zero hope that Joe Biden cares about that, his handlers care about that, that whoever is making this nomination decision, they're not going to care about that. They are going to want to put the most extreme leftist liberal activist on the bench that they can possibly get through the Senate, even with Manchin and Cinemas and uh, Collins and Murkowski's political contemplations, because politics, unfortunately, will come into play in their decision-making. He is going to want to put the most extreme leftist liberal that he can so that later, when the Dobbs opinion on abortion comes out constitutionally and it's actually favorable to the Constitution and undermines Roe versus Wade, they, the Democrats, will use that as a political talking point and say, well, look at our accomplishment. We put an activist on the bench. We put a pro-choice Democrat on the bench. And of course, they'll couch it in different terms than that. But as much as they harped against Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch during their confirmation hearings, saying you can't possibly go against um, this super precedent, remember Dianne Feinstein um, and Amy Coney Barrett's even appellate circuit confirmation hearing when the dogma lies loudly within you, well, they now, you're going to see a complete turnaround. They're not going to care about the dogma lying loudly within their nominee. It's just that the dogma now is politically preferred by them. That is not how the judicial branch works. And so we do in this country need judicial reform. But we need it not to expand the court, pack the court, uh, make it more Republican, not at all. We need judicial reform in the sense that we need to hold our government accountable to nominate genuinely conservative jurists that understand their obligation when they are on that bench to not be policymakers, not be partisan, but to actually approach the rule of law circumspectly, they need to apply the U.S. Constitution as written and understand that they are not lawmakers. And so people have often asked me, um, you know, why am I not on the bench? And, you know, President Trump actually uh, asked me if I wanted to be nominated to the federal bench. And I, I told him, you know, maybe in your second term, so we'll see. But, um, but the reason that I've never pursued being part of the judiciary is because I like being involved in policy. I have strong opinions. I want to articulate and advocate for the policies that I prefer. I want to be in the lawmaking and executive space, as well as commenting on what should the court, unbiased, looking at the rule of law, contemplate. I have my opinions and I want to be able to lobby. I want to be able to challenge these things in the public square. As a judge, you can't do that. Now, of course, do judges have their own opinions? Absolutely. But what is required of a judge when they put on that robe is to set all of that aside look at the rule of law, and even if they don't like the preferred outcome, say this is what is consistent with our U.S. Constitution and our rule of law. And I wish, 
I genuinely wish that we had nine people who were willing to serve on the Supreme Court and do just that. Because our country would be so much better off if our Supreme Court actually did what it was designed to do. But we have such an activist bench that now we have basically an oligarchy. And we had that until the Democrats, of course, lost their Supreme Court trump card. And they lost that to a now, generally speaking, conservative majority. I actually think it's a 3-3-3 split. And there were a couple of articles, like um, my good friend Josh Hammer and I have talked about this. Um, he writes for Newsweek. Um, he actually just started a podcast this week. Congratulations to him. And uh, we've, you know, we've discussed this at length, that really the 3-3-3 split, when you see that, what that means is, is that there are three activists, three conservatives, and three kind of moderate squishes, right, that on any given issue, you can't really count on them to genuinely be in either camp. So now we have an interesting sort of plurality. So um, so what the Democrats, though, have lost is their 5-4 majority. And so they are going to want to preserve that with a younger, more left progressive Justice Breyer. They're going to want to tout that as an accomplishment. They're going to want to make sure that they are preserving that. And what we as conservatives should want to do is not to say, well, we want to take back the court. No, we need to advocate for judicial reform in the sense that the judiciary actually does what it is constitutionally obligated to do and no more. Absolutely no more. So there are a lot of different ways that judicial reform can happen. But before that, we need to get out of our heads as conservative Republicans or libertarians or you know, generally the right. I'm an independent now, you all know that, uh, but I'm a conservative. What we need to get out of our heads is that we are fighting for a majority that will side with the Republican line of thinking. That's not what we advocate for. We always advocate for the rule of law to be upheld, and that means that we are genuine, genuine conservatives. Well, joining me now on this auspicious day, and I had had him scheduled to talk about his book, but now so much has come up over the last uh, just 24 hours. My good friend Michael Knowles, who of course is the host of the incredibly popular uh, Michael Knowles show on Daily Wire, and you guys just won a great legal battle, and I love that you changed, Michael, uh, the the uh, profile picture of do not comply to did not comply. I want the t-shirt. <laughs> I ordered it. It was great. Um, so thanks for joining me. It's great to be with you. Yes, there's a lot of news about the Supreme Court today. But as far as I'm concerned, the, the most important news in the Supreme Court came out over the past few weeks. That was the big win. And now the liberal jurists are all scrambling to see what can happen as the court moves into the future. But, but right now, conservatives are actually looking pretty good with regard to the judiciary. Yeah, we are. And I think that that's why it's really interesting timing that Justice Breyer, when he's retiring, it's not like this is we're losing a conservative and there's going to be a flip like we did uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and having Amy Coney Barrett. And that has shifted the composition of the court. And so to me, Michael, this signals that Joe Biden knows and well, it's not really Joe Biden. Let's be honest. It's just the people around him. He's just the plant and the, you know, the figurehead who's out eating ice cream while this happened. Uh, but it signals that the Democrats know that they are going to lose the majority in the Senate. So they're wanting to push through this nomination uh, so that they can secure that seat for the far left progressives uh, before they lose control of the Senate. Yes, I think that's the most immediate takeaway. And then there are questions about 2024. Right now, Joe Biden is looking terrible in the polls on every single issue. 
the real reason for that is because people have eyes and they can look around and they see the economy's in shambles, the gas is through the roof, the store shelves are empty, we're apparently going to uh, embark on the verge of a third world war. They told me I would vote for Trump and we'd go into World War III, and they were right. I voted for Trump and now we might be <laughs> heading into World War III. So his numbers are really, really bad. When you put Biden up against a generic Republican, he gets absolutely creamed. So yes, they, they need to watch out for, for losing the Senate majority. But then they also need to watch out for potentially not getting a second term. And I, I think they're going to they're going to pressure as, as many liberal judges who are close to retirement as possible to quit so that they can get some younger ones in their place. Do you really think that Joe Biden can actually run in 2024? I mean, are they going to be that stupid to prop up a house plant again? He didn't run in 2020 and he won. So <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they lock him in a basement and they give him a nice big ice cream cone that he gets to lick and he gets to watch television and he won't go out. They'll come up with some bogus reason why it's it's wrong for people to go campaign and and he'll probably run it from his front porch as he did last time. Plus, you've got to look at the alternatives. Joe Biden is one of the least popular men in America but somehow his vice president is actually less popular than he is. His approval rating is anywhere from 30 to 38 percent. Kamala Harris's approval rating is about 27 percent. So number two doesn't look great for them. They're trying to make Pete Buttigieg happen, just like the mean girls are trying to make Fetch happen. It's not going to happen. <laughs> happen. Stop trying to make it happen. And, and so they're, they're really left without an option. I mean, they're, they're now t talking about running Hillary Clinton. There was an op-ed by Doug Schoen in the Wall Street Journal suggesting that she would be the change candidate. So they're, they're really backed into a corner here, and I think they're, they're basically just trying to mitigate the losses. They're trying to stop the bleeding. Absolutely. And, you know, we forgot to wear our pink today. So, you know, clearly we uh, we just need to go to the mall after the show and, mm -hmm. and make sure that we do make Fetch happen. But uh, there's also been Twitter uh, hints and rumors that possibly that so unfavorable number two Kamala Harris is going to be the black woman nominee that Joe Biden promised. I can't possibly see her even remotely looking okay through a confirmation hearing without cackling and just looking like a total idiot. I think that would be a disaster for them. I don't see that happening. What's your take? I don't know that it matters in particular. They've, they've got the majority in the Senate with, with the tie-breaking vote, who I guess would be Kamala Harris. Uh, but, they, you know, they, they've, they've got the basic majority. I think the Democrats are going to be in lockstep on the judicial nominees. I've been really pleased to see that Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin have held firm on every major policy issue, whether that's the election takeover, whether that's the filibuster, whether that is the budget, I assume they're going to give the president his judge. So, so it wouldn't be that hard. It would solve a political problem for Biden, which mm -hmm. is that uh, Kamala is deeply unlikable. It would solve that problem for the Democrats. It would be a travesty for the United States Supreme Court because Kamala Harris is simply not that intelligent or well-educated, and, and she's, we would have to listen to the cackle from the bench for a very long time. So, so that would be unfortunate. Generally, even the liberal jurists have been somewhat thoughtful. I'm thinking of the Elena Kagans of the world, uh, the Ruth Bader Ginsburgs of the world. They might be completely wrong and bonkers, but they're thoughtful people. Mm -hmm. I, I, Kamala Harris would not... Would not uh, qualify in that way. Uh, still, though, I think Biden is going to be making purely political calculations here. So it's possible. Never say never. 
Yeah, well, and wouldn't that be so unfortunate? She may actually make uh, Justice Sotomayor look educated and knowledgeable about the Constitution by comparison, right. which would be a travesty for the United States of America. But, um, you know, but it's interesting as people are looking at the political calculations, you know, my takeaway and what I said um, earlier in the monologue in the show is that I think that Democrats just do what is the most convenient for them in the moment, and then they try to clean it up later because they think the news cycle only lasts uh, for five minutes. They don't care about the casualties in their own party. They just want to get things through. And so in looking at the timing of Justice Breyer retiring, looking ahead to the midterms and then also to 2024, what do you think is the political calculation besides obviously preserving the seat, but because there may be so much damage to some of these moderate Democrats like a mansion in cinema, if they have to sign on to a, a Biden judge pick, is that going to be in any way damaging to the Democrats or is this actually a good calculation and a net win for them? Because then they can point to a justice after, for example, the Dobbs decision is decided uh, to undermine Roe versus Wade. And they can say, well, see, this is why elections matter. And look at the crazy leftists that we just appointed to the bench. Rah, rah, us. I think that's important. I think there are two reasons why the Democrats need to get this judge through. One is, as we've said before, that they might not have the opportunity to do it again. But two, they need to be able to point to some accomplishment. There hasn't been any accomplishment yet. Every single thing that Biden has tried to do, he has failed on. Even just passing a basic budget, he hasn't been able to do. So regardless of the actual effect on the court decisions, they need to they need a win. And, and so I think I think they'll be able to get that right. And, and by the way, I think the moderates can be all right here because Merrick Garland, the current attorney general, he's probably too old to get the nomination now. But if you had a Merrick Garland like candidate, who is younger but seems somewhat moderate, even though he's not actually moderate, I think that would be acceptable to the moderates in the Democratic Party. You just need a D vote. You just need a leftist jurist to appease the, the radicals in the party, too. So I think it's actually kind of brilliant. I assume that there were some conversations with Justice Breyer behind the scenes here. But, but it's a bit of a Hail Mary to save their skins before the midterms. Yeah, well, Merrick Garland now just needs to identify as a black woman, and then he'll just be fine. So that was my, my tweet black earlier. Woman. But yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and that that goes into actually your book, uh, Speechless, which I've read. It's fantastic. And um, and I want to get uh, just your, you know, your brief outline of that for people who haven't read this. And um, it's so timely. It's so incredible. Speaking of identity politics and how, you know, Sonia Sotomayor is basically the poster child of affirmative action over merit when we've seen uh, some of her just lack of understanding of the Constitution from the bench. But she was a woman. She was a Latina. And so, you know, of course, you know, this is going to be such a great nominee. And so so how the left is manipulating terms and how they're trying to censor conservatives, you go through all of this in your book. And I think especially with all of these headlines, it's incredibly timely. So for people who haven't read this and beyond the fact that you're Michael Knowles and they should listen and read, you know, whatever you write anyways, uh, what beyond that is the uh, advantage for people to getting this book right now in the midst of these headlines? Well, I think I might need to write a sequel because we're seeing even more egregious examples today. You just saw that the CDC and the public health apparatus has changed the definition of vaccinated from fully vaccinated to up to date because what was previously fully vaccinated isn't doing what they said it would do. And so, so now they've got to add more vaccines. And, and so they're manipulating the language to manipulate our politics. We know that the left does that. What my book, I think, has uniquely offered in outlining the history, the 100-year history of how the left has manipulated language to change our culture, is they've pointed out that the right has gotten a lot wrong, too. 
that the right has tended to view this as a battle between censorship on one hand and free speech on the other. But I, I think that's a false dichotomy. I think that's exactly what the liberals want us to view it as. I, I don't think that conservatives are anarchists. I don't think we believe that you ought to be able to just sh- scream whatever profanities you want, wherever you want to say them. I don't think we believe that every single thing you could possibly say or do is protected by the First Amendment. Things like obscenity, fraud, fighting words, all the things that, that Republicans understand you need to prohibit in a mm-hmm. civilized society. I think what the battle is really about is between two competing sets of standards. The the liberals want to have a standard where all the obscene, filthy, false things are protected and all the good, true, and beautiful things are censored. And I think what conservatives need to do is offer a different, substantive vision of society and say, no, we we are going to censor certain things. We're going to censor critical race theory in the classroom. We're going to censor radical gender theory in elementary schools. That has no place in the American tradition, no place in schools. And we are going to protect what the Founding Fathers understood to be First Amendment protected speech. We're going to protect that, that political speech that is so important to our American tradition. And, and we're not going to let the, the libs put the wool over our eyes. Yeah, and I think that's that's a very apt uh, false dichotomy that you articulate because a lot of conservatives or Republicans or people who would identify at least in that political camp have unfortunately gone the way of, of drastic libertarianism, which is to say that anything goes and it's almost amoral and we have licentiousness and we don't have any standard whatsoever. That's not good or healthy or even lawful in society. And so traditionally when we've had these battles and we've had the standards that our founders set up talking about um, this country was only and and the constitution is only made for a moral and upright people. I mean, they're talking about standards. They're talking about worldview. They're talking about a standard that comes from outside ourselves when they say that our rights come from God, our creator, not our government. And so as I look to the next generation of so-called conservatives, I'm very concerned, Michael, that the line is being shifted And we are political gerrymandering in all of these different areas of saying, you know what, you draw the moral line wherever you prefer. And Mm -hmm. libertarians are taking over the movement in a way that is unsustainable and genuinely not on the right of the political spectrum. Right. All you need to know is that for much of American history, we had blasphemy laws. That would be unthinkable in many portions of the right today. But the craziest part is we still have blasphemy laws. It's just that now the laws are not opposed to blaspheming God. They're opposed to blaspheming the sacred idols of LGBTQ plus or BLM or any of the other idols that the left has brought into our culture. There's no escaping it. There's no escaping taboos. There's no escaping standards. There's no escaping beliefs that are held in common. That is true of all societies. That has certainly been true throughout the history of the United States. So the choice is not between total free speech or or censorship. The choice is between whether we want to engage in the cultural battle, articulate the way we want politics to work, or whether we want to bury our heads in the sand. So for people who maybe, you know, this is a new idea and they're thinking that sounds really great. So how would you articulate a standard that we can draw from and say, here is the line of what actually makes sense and how we as conservatives can defend it without ceding to the leftist playbook of, well, that's just your opinion or it's based on religion. So, you know, you have you you can't force your beliefs on me. Well, it is my opinion. And I guess that my opinions have something to do with my religion. But both the opinion and the religion happen to be correct. So I guess that would be the first thing I would say. And, and more than that, when we say that we want good things, not bad things, we want true things, not false things, 
we're not merely stating a preference. We're using our faculties of reason to be able to discern something about objective reality. I know there are some people today who say that we can't, bl- we can't ban drag queen story hour, perverts twerking for kids in the library, because if we do that, who's to say that's bad? If we do that, maybe they'll stop us from going to church on Sunday, which, by the way, they're already doing. Yep. Th- that, that kind of radical skepticism is pretty silly to me. Self-government requires that you make judgments, you individually and then you as a people, make judgments about what is good and what is bad and what you're going to encourage and what you're going to prohibit and what is true and what is false. And you, you have to do that. There's no getting around it. If we say, if we really believe that we can't tell the difference between drag queen story hour and a pastor preaching on a Sunday, what we're saying is we can't have self-government. And that's what the left is banking on. And that is how the left has advanced their agenda. And I think there's still hope for self-government, but we need to grow a spine. We need to exercise our faculties of reason and we need the courage to articulate that standard. Absolutely. And you and uh, your cohort at Daily Wire uh, have literally been doing that in the midst of uh, the COVID narrative and refusing to comply and standing and not just saying, let's have courage and saying that, but actually showing it when your company was on the line. And so that's something that I think is very important for a lot of conservatives to have figures like you, like you know Jeremy Boring at Daily Wire and Ben Shapiro and everyone who stood firm and said, we're not just going to speak this rhetoric and encourage all of you to do it, but we're going to do it when we are called to. And I think that speaks very, very uh, highly of not only Daily Wire and that, but basically that you practice what you preach. And mm. that's, I, ju- I commend you. I've commended uh, Jeremy. He's a great friend and I really respect the stance that you took. And I'm grateful that uh, the Supreme Court was forced to engage uh, the unconstitutional vaccine mandates. And um, now, you know, the battleground is shifting. But um, speaking of shifting battlegrounds, um, Michael, uh, the last topic I want to get uh, with you about is what is going on in Tennessee? You are a new resident of Tennessee. And just yesterday, last night, oddly, uh, President Trump issued a pre-endorsement of Morgan Ortegas, who I have met. I like her. She's, you know, she's a great person, but she has not been in Tennessee that long. She is not the right person for Tennessee, where Robbie Starbuck, who is a good friend, I had already endorsed him, has been running a great campaign since last year in Tennessee's 5th District. And this, to me, Michael, shows that President Trump, it's not so much his view, it's that he has been disconnected from the base and still has a number of idiots around him who are giving him very bad advice. He's still listening to the McCarthy's, the Ronna McDaniels, the RNCs of the world, and he's really making a lot of conservatives very mad because he's choosing the McCarthy candidates instead of the true America First candidates like Robbie Starbuck. So with that, obviously, I've opened the door to any of your analysis. But what do you really think, Jenna? I want to, <laughs> you know, I think I might be the only recent arrival to Nashville who is not running for Congress this year. <laughs> I, I don't know, Claire, maybe I should throw my hat in the ring. Even though, not too even late. Though, uh, President Trump has already given his endorsement, though. And I, I suspect you're right. I like Morgan very much. I like Robbie very much. I even know some of the people who have lived here <laughs> a little longer who are, who are in the race. And there are a number. I think there are about five candidates in the race right now, five or six. And uh, I, I do think it's probably a little bit early. I don't think that recent arrivals necessarily can't make good congressmen. I think they can. I think there's also something to be said for familiarity with the district and the fact that this is a new district. These districts are being divided up. And so there is a primary process. 
that is going to play out here. Uh, but it, it, to me, the most interesting aspect of this whole story is not whether it's going to be Robbie or whether it's going to be Morgan or whether it's going to be Beth Harwell, who is the former Speaker of the Tennessee House who's also running in that district. To me, the more interesting story is who is giving Trump advice? Many of the people around Trump, yourself included, love Robbie Starbuck. I guess some of the other people love Megan or Morgan rather. Morgan worked for the administration. I guess there are probably not too many Tennessee state people who are around Donald Trump who are talking about the other candidates. So to, to me, that's more interesting because however this mm -hmm. primary shakes out, it looks like the Republicans have a lock on this district and frankly, the entire Congress. But looking ahead beyond 2022 to 2024, the question is, what kind of campaign is Trump going to run? Are we going to see Trump 2015 outsider candidate or are we going to see Trump getting maybe a little bit more Washington establishment advice. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he's going to have to listen to somebody, and, and I would suspect that he'll have more luck if he's looking at, at the more outsider consultants and advisors. Yeah, I mean, and that was what um, so many people who weren't initially Trump supporters, myself included, I didn't know him uh, at all. And, you know, he had no track record. And in 2016, where a lot of conservatives came on board was because he was the outsider candidate. He wasn't just lis listening to the establishment in Washington. And if he's still now listening in his endorsements and, you know, in full disclosure, I don't talk to him about every endorsement. I didn't talk to him about this one. Um, you know, I would have told him to um, endorse Robbie. And I think that for a lot of conservatives who are looking at and asking those questions, who gave him this advice? Well, to me, um, on, you know, kind of the outside inside, um, it's, it seems to be very apparent that there are still a number of establishment rhinos like mm -hmm. Ronna McDaniel, like Kevin McCarthy, uh, like Mitch McConnell and others that somehow Trump thinks that he still needs to abide by their advice instead of being more of the 2016 uh, version of himself. And that's why the American people fell in love with him. That's why the MAGA base is so strongly for him. But I've seen, Michael, today um, on Twitter, so many ardent America first, you know, American patriots who are very, very deeply disturbed about this particular endorsement. Hmm. Like you said, not just because it's Morgan versus Robbie, but because of the uh, the dynamic around it and saying, OK, if he's willing to make this kind of endorsement, what does that signal about people around him? So if you're advising President Trump, what's your advice to him going into further endorsements for 2022 and running his campaign in 2024? President Trump has one liability, and the liability is this. He spent four years in D.C. That's it. And he did a lot of great stuff, and I supported the vast majority of the stuff he did. There were a few missteps along the way. The, the crime, uh, jailbreak bill would be one example, the, the crime bill. I thought that was an example of kind of going in the wrong direction. But there were, by and large, he was a, he was a tremendous president. He was most tremendous when he was fighting the entrenched powers, and he did it better than any other politician in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. So the fear here is that he runs on being the former president. He runs on being the guy who is, knows how to get things done in Washington. The best part about him is he actually doesn't know how to get things done that well. He just does them. He just breaks all the rules. He tells all those genius people to shut up, and he does whatever he wants to do. That, that's the only way to me that he's, he's got that appeal. It is a singular appeal in politics right now, and I hope, I hope for his sake he doesn't squander it. 
Yeah, and so a lot of people have been saying his endorsement is key. He's a kingmaker, uh, and that is the most sought-after endorsement in Washington. Do you think that that becomes a liability for him moving forward if he continues on more of the establishment route and following the track of the RNC versus uh, the truly America First candidates? And, and that's that's obviously a subjective somewhat to, to people's opinion who they back, but at least in the perception of the base, is this a bigger deal for him? Or do you think that this ultimately uh, kind of goes away if he actually listens to your advice and, uh, and, and runs it in a way that he's the outsider, not the insider? When you're talking about endorsements, the most important rule is to pick a winner. And yes, President Trump has a lot of influence, and so he might be able to make winners. In certain places, it's going to be a little bit tougher where his opinion, where his influence is less pronounced on the party. So yes, he's got to do it. And I think he's got to make sure that the people that he is endorsing are the kind of people who have their heart in the right place and they're going to have his back when, when you're looking at 2024. That's just a personal political advice to him. I'm not saying that Morgan is not that person. Morgan might very well be that person. But when you're looking at other districts, he's probably going to be making 400 endorsements, more than 400 plus endorsements in congressional races. He's got to make sure that he's endorsing the kind of people who have the guts to stand up when, when the chips are down because going into 2024... I fear that a number of people who are eager for his endorsement now are not going to be so eager to support him then. Yeah, and we've, we've seen Mitch McConnell being one of the huge ones that's the flip-flopper. You know, we'll support him when it's advantageous to him, and then we'll completely do a turnabout when he thinks it's politically advantageous to him, rather than sticking up and acknowledging that, you know, no one is going to be perfect, but standing by the right decision, not just the politically advantageous decision. And, you know, Michael, in my time in D.C., and I hopefully will always remain an outsider, even though I've, you know, been in um, as, as far as you can get, you know, in terms of being personal counsel to the president of the United States, but seeing the depth of the corruption and how so many people are so self-interested in what's doing, what it, in doing what is politically expedient rather than simply doing what's right. And to me, that is the greatest current flaw of the GOP machine is that there are so many people who are operating basically with the same philosophy and the same worldview as Democrats. They do what's expedient. They do what is politically advantageous. They they broker all of the right deals. But at the end of the day, they aren't willing to simply stand up for what's right. And I'm so disappointed in so many of the so-called conservatives who, when the chips have been down and when they need to stand up, they just don't because, as you were talking about a moment ago, they just don't have the courage to do that. And that's what I hope that more of the candidates who are saying, you know what, I've looked around at what's gone on in the last uh, you know, few years, and I want to be in this race because my country matters, and I want to stand up and do what's right. And I hope that we get more political engagement from everyday citizens because of that. I mean, are you at least encouraged that we are seeing more regular Americans actually participate in politics and political discourse? I am, especially the parents movement. I think that's that's a really wonderful change that we've seen because it one, it cuts across party lines. It it puts a stop to the insanity of racial and, and sexual theories in schools. It is people who are doing politics for the right reason. One important lesson from Trump is that Donald Trump is a powerful, famous billionaire with an extremely beautiful wife and a giant airplane. Donald Trump pretty much has it all when you're talking about the things of this world. And so he's got very little to lose. If he is going to 
get into politics. He's not doing it for money. He's not doing it so the girls like him. He's not doing it to get invited to parties. He still won't get invited to those parties. He's doing it to go all the way, to, to really be that guy, to go and make a, a difference. What I think about politics, I think about the United Kingdom. You want to be Winston Churchill, not Lloyd George. Do not just get into politics to be a congressman, to be mm -hmm. a, a state representative. There are easier ways to make a buck. There are many more productive ways to spend your lives. But if you're going to go in for the right reason and say, you people are telling me that I can't accomplish the things I want and I've got to play ball and I've got to be, oh, you know what, I've got two words for you and they ain't happy birthday. If you can go in with that kind of attitude, then I think it can be a wonderful calling. And, and that's certainly the kind of change we need right now because we, we are in a place in our country where we can't tell the difference between men and women. Obviously, we are at a, a, at a crossroads here. We're at an urgent moment. And so the, the time for courage is now. We might not have another opportunity for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. And that was the 2016 version of Trump and even the 2020 where, you know, he stood up and said, I'm going to do the right thing regardless. And all of you Washington elites, I don't have time for you. And that is what made him so effective in the ways uh, that he was in his first term. And I loved that about him. I still love that about him. And I hope that he has the same courage to discount uh, the advisors that have other interests besides truly what's best for America and what's best for him as well at heart. So, uh, Michael Knowles, where can people find you? Find your book, obviously, Daily Wire. Everyone should subscribe there. Get your uh, leftist uh, liberal tears mug. I have one. I love it. So I, I told Andrew Clavin actually a while ago, I was like, how do I not have a leftist tears mug after like five years? So I finally got one. So that's good. Um, I'm glad. Yes. I'm glad we sent you one. You can find me over at Daily Wire at the Michael Knowles Show podcast. You can also get it for free wherever you get your audio podcasts, Apple, Spotify, that sort of thing. Uh, you can also find me on Verdict with Ted Cruz. You can also find me on the book club at PragerU. You can get my blank book, Reasons to Vote for Democrats. You can get my book with words, which we talked about, Speechless. And as always, Jenna, so wonderful to be with you. Great, great to have you, my friend. And thanks so much. And keep up uh, speaking out and speaking truth and standing up with courage and conviction. We need more voices like yours and like everyone at Daily Wire. So I always appreciate you. And thanks for coming on. Well, you too. Thank you, my dear. Before I go, I also want to talk about another great American who is the sponsor of this podcast. And that, of course, is my good friend, Mike Lindell. He has been canceled out of so many box stores for simply standing up for his own political opinion and disagree or not uh, or support him or not. It is a fundamental right of every American to be able to voice their opinion, and that absolutely includes politics. That absolutely includes uh, issues that are central to our culture. That includes faith. Uh, Mike is such a very sincere Christian, and I am proud to consider him a friend, and he is, of course, a friend of this show. So right now, there is a special on MyPillow.com. Click on the new radio listener specials. Get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including a great towel set, which is a six-piece set, it includes two bath, two hand towels, two washcloths, made in the USA, regularly $109.99, now just $39.99. But you have to use the promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A. That tells Mike that you listen to this show. You're happy that he is uh, a sponsor of this show and you will get great, great discounts. But use the promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A either at MyPillow.com or call 1-800-564-8475 and use the promo code Jenna. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.